Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and this is our interview show, where we sit down with a guest, think about their work or ideas, and unpack the rest. Today, we are once again speaking with Anshu Sharma. He's been a venture capitalist. He's been an exec over at Salesforce, and currently he's wearing the mantle of a founder over at Skyflow. And we're having Anshu back on the show today, not to talk about interest rates and money like we did the last time he was here, but instead we're going to talk about the innovator's dilemma and how well that idea, that business concept applies to the current moment and how it applies to technology. This is all wrapped around the question of how well will Apple's Vision Pro headset do when it does launch and down the road. We are putting this episode out on Thursday, the night before the Vision Pro actually goes on sale. We wanted to have the conversation before that moment. So let's talk about what's going to happen and why. Andrew, welcome back to the show. Yeah, so my thesis was twofold. One was interest rates don't matter in the short run because everybody changes their spreadsheet cells like, oh, two is now five. But over the next 10, 20 years, which is the true cost of capital, you know, two becomes two and a half. It doesn't really go from two to five. And secondly, the reason it doesn't go from two to five is because it eventually comes back down. And it took an extra year for that to be proven out and for Powell to be able to say that it was transitionary. But I think it was transitionary and things are slowly getting back to where they were. And in fact, a lot of equity analysts are now claiming we are at a risk of a melt-up. Yes. And if you looked at the stock market recently, you'll notice that things look pretty good. So at least the stock market is doing fine. The economy, will have to see. But Andrew, that is all past tense. That's all what we talked about before. Today, we're going to break some new ground and talk about Apple hardware, everyone's favorite thing, because as it turns out, inside of Apple's upcoming launch of the Vision Pro headset, which I believe drops tomorrow morning, or maybe when you hear this tomorrow morning, there's a lot of lessons about how to build things and how to take on new markets. So, Anshu, we were talking about the innovator's dilemma. You had a very interesting thesis about how it often doesn't apply to the technology market. And if you want to build new markets, actually going more expensive versus less expensive is the way to go. But to help get people there, I want to back up and I want to start with just the definition of the innovator's dilemma. Everyone's heard of it. Few people can describe it. So in your own words, break it down. Yes. And I speak as someone who's more of an engineer than an MBA. Ding, ding. My understanding of innovator's dilemma is it's a theory that Clayton Christensen came up with about 25 plus years ago, where he tried to explain to the world how companies actually lose their leadership in their core markets. So his thesis was, you know, you're IBM, you're selling more and more mainframes. You think that's the most profitable part of the business. Somebody comes in and tries to disrupt you by building a product in a market where the product is much cheaper, has much smaller profits. And therefore, if you're IBM, you ignore the PC makers. If you're BMW, you ignore Toyota. If you are a steel mill company in America, you you know ignore the steel mill company in China. And his thesis was, that's how companies actually get destroyed. They basically lose their market share eventually because the inferior product and this is the key to his theory. The products are typically inferior from low-cost countries, from companies not well-known. These inferior products eventually get better and better with time. And as a result, they become good enough for majority of the market. So 40 years ago, 
you may not have bought a Toyota car in America because GM was considered the high end. Today, very few people can even imagine a brand like Toyota being considered poor quality. And so his thesis was, hey, just like cars get better, everything gets better, and therefore companies should focus a lot on this problem. And this is how you defend your leadership. Yes. And one thing that was interesting, because prepping for this, I went back and I read the original article that Clayton had put out that actually predated the book itself that's now so well known. And they were discussing how when a company builds a inferior product, so PCs to mini computers, PCs to mainframes, they often end up going after an entirely different market segment. So if you're IBM, you don't even notice your customers being cannibalized until you realize that the new product that was cheaper and less capable and now is cheaper and more capable is coming for your core market until it's a little bit too late. And the dilemma is how do you serve your core customers and make as much money as you can for your shareholders while also being defensive? And the struggle is it's very hard to do because, Anshu, as we know, for existing products, if you want to make more money, you go up market. But if the risk is coming from beneath you, well, it's hard to see both. This is, I kind of want to say, like standard business logic today. This is kind of like the operating model that people still hold in their heads even this far into the theory's life, yeah? Yes, so... If you read a random article about business strategy and disruption, disruption has become synonymous with disparate from below. And almost everything people are trying to explain, whether it's iPhone versus BlackBerry, whether it's, you know, uh, MetaQuest versus Vision Pro, all of these things, people have the lens of like, hey, who is disrupting whom? And usually the answer is like, hey, it's happened before. It always happens this way. And therefore, If you produce a very high-end sound system, somebody's going to produce a $50 version of your Sonos product and you're going to die. Hey, my house is fully wired up with Sonos. Don't say that. Exactly. I need that company to stick around. Exactly. (laughs) And as we discussed, that's where maybe he's not so right. Yes. Well, we'll get to that in a second. I want to quote from the original article outlining the thesis here because I think it matters. So I'm going to paraphrase generally and put some of these together. But here's how big companies end up missing what's coming that later disrupts them. So, quote, generally, disruptive technologies look financially unattractive to established companies. As a result, managers typically conclude that the technology cannot make a meaningful contribution to corporate growth and, therefore, that it is not worth the management effort required to develop it. And so that's how you end up with a blind spot the size of a competitor in your rearview mirror. And I think, you know, in the examples that were originally given on shoot, they discussed, for example, the hard drive market and how people would often build the next generation of hard drives that were smaller in terms of like literally physical size and also held less data. And so high-end customers, high manufacturers weren't interested, but then those smaller format devices ended up with more storage, and then they crushed the larger devices in the market. So another example of this, you've been an executive at various companies. You've worked at Oracle, Salesforce, you've done the venture thing. How often do people bring up the innovator's dilemma in those corporate settings? I think it's almost the Bible of business people. If your company is run by somebody who's ex McKinsey, ex BCG, it's going to come up in the first meeting. If it's run by somebody who took an evening course at Harvard or Wharton, It's going to come up in the second meeting and it's run by somebody who's an engineer. It's going to come up in the third to fifth meeting, but it's going to come up. Yeah, it's unavoidable. And you're going to basically discuss it. Yes. So when did you start to think that while the innovator's dilemma does have a place in kind of like the pantheon of business logic, it is an important mental model for some companies. 
When did you start to think that it may not apply as directly or as accurately to certain parts of the technology market? I think the first time it hit me was Apple Watch. I remember Apple Watch coming out and me thinking, you know, just like everybody else, by the way, here, I love Clayton Christensen. I love what he wrote. I followed him. I read not just his Innovator's Dilemma book, but also several other books. So I was trying to always figure out, hey, is this Apple Watch new product, new category? It's going to succeed or fail. How can I look at it from the eyes of disruption? And I remember thinking, oh my God, a lot of people are talking about how Apple Watch is just too expensive. Who's going to pay four or $500 for a watch that has no apps in those days? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Has about a two to four hour battery life if you start using it properly, maybe eight hours on a good day, by the way. So imagine a watch that doesn't run for 24 hours, a watch that has no apps, a watch that can't make phone calls, and a watch that barely can tell you time. That watch is being launched by a company like Apple, and everybody is like, well, this has got no hope of success because it's too expensive. And I had learned my lesson from the iPhone when I thought the iPhone was too expensive and reluctantly didn't buy it for the first few months. And then when I bought it, my mind was blown. So I said, this time I'm going to give Steve Jobs a chance, you know. Let his spirit be, you know, honored through my purchase of the Apple Watch. And when I bought it, I actually agreed with everybody that, you know, it doesn't really do everything it's supposed to do. And it's way too expensive. But something cropped up in my mind and said, you know, it's more aspirational. And if they try to produce this watch for $50, it would be 10 times worse. Yes. So maybe it's a good thing that they're producing a watch for like $500 rather than $50. And that was the beginning of me starting to think, hey, maybe disruption doesn't always work in one direction. Maybe there's another path to disrupting industries. So let's talk about the iPhone example, because there's some canonical footage of former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer, if I recall correctly, laughing when the iPhone is kind of described to him. And he's like, $500? Are you crazy? We have like six new devices that are coming out. They're going to be affordable. They're running Windows. And that was one of the bigger missteps in Microsoft's history. They ended up missing the entire mobile generation. Tried with Windows Phone, ended up giving that up. Bought Nokia, gave that up. Very expensive mistake. But it seems that he fell prey to this almost reverse innovator's dilemma when it's not the lower price product that does less that is the way forward, but actually a higher price product. But I want to clarify something. You mentioned how the Apple Watch didn't have apps didn't have a long battery life, et cetera. But when I think about higher-end devices that do capture my attention, they tend to be pretty well-featured. So is a lack of capability and a high price standard, or is that kind of an Apple Watch-only situation that was special and therefore different from your usual point? I think that's where people get tricked, right? Not only is the thing more expensive, it's in some meaningful way inferior. And I think people focus on the inferior part. They forget about the superior part. So who's buying an Apple Watch? You know, somebody who already owns a Mac, already has maybe an iPhone or two, is already committed to the Apple ecosystem and wants to be ahead of the curve. That's a different buyer. That's a hobbyist, enthusiast buyer. It's the same buyer that buys a Porsche 911, right? Mm -hmm. So evaluating a product based on what the mainstream definition of functionality is and the price point is, in my opinion, the mistake. 
So essentially, what we should consider is don't look at the average consumer if you want to build a new product or product category that will succeed. But at the same time, if you want to exist in a high competition, low margin business, you can make cheap goods for everybody. That's still important, but not really what we're talking about when we consider innovation and risk thereof. Is that fair? Yeah. So I end my article that's running on TechCrunch right now with this line which says, you know, the answer to all of this is actually very, very simple. Build a better product. <laughs> right? Too many times we get caught up in disruption theory and all of these things. To me, what people like Steve Jobs did well, I think Elon Musk does this brilliantly these days when he's he does launch successful products, which is maniacal focus on delivering a superior product for a specific market. Because by definition, there's no such thing as a superior product for every market. You know, if I was launching a t-shirt, and t-shirt is the most commoditized thing that we can have in this world. Absolutely. But even there, if it has a logo of your company or your sports team, you're really not buying the texture and the quality and the thread count, are you? No. So the focus has to be building a better product. Way too many times, I'm using MBA as a shorthand. I love my MBA friends. But way too many times, if you have this MBA first mindset, which is I'm going to capture this market with these many dollars and make this profit. Usually you're basically trying to engineer a product after the fact, rather than starting with what's a superior product. And here's the interesting part. When you start building superior products, more often than not, they require higher end inputs. They require higher end design. They require higher end machinery. They require higher end marketing. And therefore, it turns out, in my experience, that a superior product often ends up being a more expensive product. And my insight here was simply that that's okay. You shouldn't artificially try to build a product that's way cheaper because you think there is some idealistic notion of winning by disrupting from below, because especially in things that are breakthrough technologies, it's very hard to do these things simultaneously. It's very hard to simultaneously build a better watch, but also build it at a $100 price point. It's hard to build a new kind of AI with GPUs and do it for less than a few billion dollars. So the nature of invention is it's pushing the envelope what's possible. And usually that means more resources. Now, it's not always true. There are actually intelligent inventions that you can come up with that fundamentally lower the cost. At some point, somebody's going to come in and figure out a new kind of an algorithm for LLMs that may require less. But that's the second order invention rather than the first order invention. And we're going to get back to ChatGPT, OpenAI, and Tesla and how they fit into your thesis. But we have to take a very short break, my friends. Don't go anywhere. We're back in just a second. We are back with Anshu, and you just brought up essentially AI technologies, which was an example that we riffed on. So how does people paying for ChatGPT today fit into your thesis about not innovating at the lower end of the market, but innovating at the higher end? Yes. So how many people listening to this podcast are already paying $20 a month for an app that is superior in some ways to your search engine? I am. The reality is... I'm, wait, 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 let, let's pull. We're, we're both here. Yes. I'm currently paying 20 bucks a month for ChatGPT. Anshu, are you paying? 
I am paying and everybody at Skyflow is allowed to expense it too. Nice. So, there you go. See? And that's the nature of a true superior product. Not only are we willing to pay more, we're almost proud of paying more. It actually improves our work life or personal life in certain situations so much that it's a no-brainer, right? Yeah. Having an assistant for $20 a month is a no-brainer compared to almost any form of assistance you can get. In San Francisco Bay, I can barely get a cup of tea for $20. <laughs> if you're lucky. Yes. Yeah. So I think it comes down to, again, pushing the envelope. Could GPT have made a cheaper version? Actually, they did. It's free. And yeah. some people do use it. It's not completely lost in them. But people were willing to and clamoring for the latest high-end version of GPT to be accessible to them. And if I had to guess, if tomorrow OpenAI came up with a much better model with much better experience, and they were charging $49 a month for it, a large... I would pay it. <laughs> exactly. So actually, this is a great thought experiment for our listeners who may be reacting to like, hey, disruption is kind of like always happens from below. I don't like paying more for the goods and services. It's true in the abstract. If I say, hey, would you like to pay more for Netflix? No. Everybody would say no. But do you realize content was available for free on YouTube? And It still is. It still is. And tens of millions of people actually paid for I think the idea that we happily, willingly pay for services has always been true, right? You know, 50 years ago, my mom had a maid who came in and helped her out. And I'm sure you paid for some services like getting your car cleaned or fixed. Sure. I think when it came to the technology world, we have a hard time figuring out what's the value of a particular technology. And that's why I think we sometimes struggle. But generally speaking, it's good for the economy. It's good for the users. And therefore, it's really important that People not constrain themselves when they're building products by some arbitrary notion of as a startup or as a new product builder at a big company, the only way to disrupt is from below. And I think if you look at a lot of failed experiments at big companies and small companies, they actually tend to be somebody trying to build a cheaper version of something that doesn't really actually go in and disrupt the value. And even worse, you're doing a lot of work to generate very thin profit margins. It's actually not even better if you pull it off. But I want to go back to hardware for a second, because in your post on TC, and I'm going to yank the paywall off of this so everyone can read it. So if you're listening to this, don't worry. It's for free on the internet. You talked about Tesla, their secret plan, and how they essentially started off with a very expensive car and then worked backwards. I just want to go over this because I have a question about hardware. But first, talk us through Tesla. So Tesla is a very interesting example. Electric cars were practically infeasible. The reason they were infeasible was because it costs a lot of money to actually put in the right amount of batteries in there. In fact, till about the time Elon Musk started figuring it out, his aha wasn't that people want an electric car. People had thought about electric cars for 20, 30, 40 years. In fact, famously, you know, General Motors and all these companies had built, experimented with, tried out electric cars and, you know, hydrogen cars and all those experiments. They were just not feasible. If you think about what is feasibility, what is take to produce something new. At infinite cost, I can almost produce almost anything. Feasibility is about technology getting to a point where I can produce something for a fairly reasonable value. Now, the cusp of it usually is on the expensive side. So about 12, 13 years ago now, I suppose, maybe more, it became feasible to produce a roadster for about $150,000 that drove, I don't know, 50 miles. It, it wasn't far. It yeah. wasn't very far. And I remember famously people like Jay Leno joking about it and such. 
even I thought it was a silly idea. Like I have a car that goes, I don't know, 300, 400 miles on a single fill. Yeah. Why would I want this weird toy that seats one or two people? It was a Lotus body, as you remember. Yeah, yeah. But Elon Musk wrote down the master plan. It's publicly viewable. If you can go to his website and check it out and basically said, look, I'm going to build a very expensive sports car. Use the profits from that to build a less expensive car. Use the profits from that to build a less expensive car. And the rumor has it that Tesla is on plan to generate their, what they call next-gen vehicle, which is going to be a $25,000 less price car, which means after credits and stuff, it may be as low as $15,000. So they're on track to produce an insanely cheap price, but it took 15 years. And, and even today, it took starting at the absolute top of the market, selling to a smaller audience at a much higher price point. Exactly. And the result of that is he was able to put in not just an electric car, he was able to put in a giant iPad. He was able to put in a bunch of things in there that transformed cars. And if you want to think about profitability, if you're a GM and you have had electric cars running around your test tracks for a long time, but you realize that if you add an extra trim option to pickup trucks, you can make a billion dollars or you can spend $5 billion trying to make electric cars for 10 people, you're probably going to do the better trim level for the truck because it makes near-term financial sense. And that is really not the innovator's dilemma in a nutshell, but the innovator's opportunity. This is how you actually do take on larger companies and so forth. Now, Anshu, Two things. One, we talked a lot about hardware today. The iPhone, we talked about Tesla. You had NVIDIA as another example in your article. And this brings us to the Apple headset, the Apple face computer, the Vision Pro, which is coming out this week. And people have been saying what we usually hear. It's too expensive. It's too small. It's poorly featured. But given your thesis that we just discussed at length, do you think that the Apple Vision Pro actually has a good chance at success once it reaches the market pretty much right now? I believe that products are not point in time. Products define a long-term strategy, especially if you're a company like Apple. You know, I think Jeff Bezos talked about it. Everybody wants to win in three years. Very few people want to win in seven years. If you're willing to win in seven years as opposed to three years, you're already at the top of the mountain. You know, that's been our strategy at my startup. So I think Vision Pro is going to, by definition, be a more superior product relative to all the headsets available in the market today because it costs 10 times more. Imagine if I gave you a budget to build a house for half a million dollars worth of $5 million, how much more house could you build? So the product is superior. It is expensive. It's insanely expensive. But compared to what? You know, think about an upgrade to one single business class ticket from here to Tokyo, right? People are paying $2,500, $5,000 just to upgrade one ticket one time. Imagine sitting with a headset on a flight with the infinite space around you, uh -huh. although you're cramped. So when people think about prices, we get so narrowly focused on the category and the competitor. And I think that's where it basically gets constraining. So I believe Vision Pro is going to be phenomenally successful in seven years. It's going to have a relatively good launch and they're going to sell like a billion or $2 billion worth of product. Some people are going to use that number to say they failed because, you know, for a company doing hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue, what is $2 billion? But that's how the Apple Watch started. Yes. And that's how the iPhone started. So I think in the long run, it's going to be successful because once they commit to it, you're going to end up with almost the same headset 
with less weight and much lower prices, but it's going to take us three to five years to get there. You will eventually have a $1,000 version of Vision without a Pro. Yeah, just, just Vision. Exactly. There's a reason they've named their product Vision Pro, by the way. It's an indicator that at some point there's going to be something that's not for professionals. It's going to be a Vision. And that's going to be cheaper. Yeah. I want to go back, though, to your excellent analogy for the regular folks out there. You know, when you're flying to Tokyo and you're upgrading to business class, everyone's like, no, we don't know that, actually, Andrew. That's not how our life goes. <laughs> okay, to close this out, I want to talk about hardware and I want to talk about startups. So, Andrew, I'm very curious. Does this model you're describing only apply to things that have a physical component? And if not... Does it apply to how startups should be approaching building and pricing their own goods and services they're bringing to market? Yeah, I think if you had an hour, I could give a whole talk on, on category theory almost, which is simply my way of saying that if you define your startup's market as a specific category, then you're bound by the specific price points in that category. So if you're building a CRM, highly unlikely you could charge more than what Salesforce does. $250 a user, you could charge $300 maybe, but highly unlikely you could charge $1,500. Yeah. I think it's not the price point that's important. It's freeing yourself from the category. But when you free yourself from the category, you get to redefine what your software does. So imagine a world where instead of having a CRM product, you had something that we're not going to call CRM. Imagine if OpenAI was building an assistant for your salespeople. Imagine it could actually make sales calls. Imagine it could actually take down notes. Imagine it could actually do the follow-up. Imagine occasionally it could assemble the slide deck. Suddenly, you're not really talking about CRM. You're talking about giving everybody a full-time executive assistant, which would cost thousands of dollars a month. And at that point, if your product is still CRM, CRM-ish, CRM++, you're bound to the $300 price point. However, if you've truly thought beyond the category of CRM, you're not bound by what it means to be a database or a CRM, then you can solve a meaningful problem for the customer at a different price point because it has a different set of capabilities. And that's what I mean by being able to think differently about prices. It's not the price itself that matters. And funnily enough, that assistant, you could say it's disrupting the humans. Because it is cheaper. True. However, if you notice, it's not a better human or inferior human. It's actually a much superior CRM is what I just described to you. Again, the point is, free yourself from trying to just build a slightly cheaper one. So many companies have tried to build cheaper version of Salesforce. The biggest of them was Sugar CRM. It was open source. Nothing is cheaper than $0. <laughs> right. Well, actually, it depends on opportunity costs, but yeah, no, I, I hear you. Exactly. Everybody listening to this podcast, you know, either you're using Salesforce or using HubSpot or using some other CRM, and the chances are you're paying more than $0. Why? Because you understand that it's not just the software. It's about the services. It's about who's going to manage it, who's going to maintain it, the uptime, downtime. So all of those things combined... That's what allowed us at Salesforce when I was there to redefine the category. You know, Mark Benioff called it no software. We redefine software by basically calling it no software. Yes. I think the challenge for entrepreneurs and product managers listening to this podcast is to allow themselves to dream. 
to dream of a new category, a new product, a fundamentally new experience, kind of like what I'm trying to do here with data protection with Skyflow, right? We are imagining an entire new industry that handles data differently. So if you can imagine it differently, the price point will come out of that. The price point may be 10 times cheaper, maybe 10 times higher. In an ideal world, you build something that nobody can compare it to. You built a car that's self-driving, has an iPad, and has a bunch of features that are not simply available in the market. So it doesn't matter whether your Model S is priced at $55,000 or $75,000 or $95,000. Because there's nothing quite like it out there, so the comparisons don't line up. And then what's cool for us consumers is Moore's Law kicks in, and we get better and better devices, often at slightly descending prices, though, of course, I think iPhones are still pretty expensive. But this has been an attempt, everybody, to recreate a conversation that Anshu and I had on the phone. And I thought to myself, well, we need to write about this, we need to talk about it, because it did invert my thinking on innovation and just the risks of being out-innovated. So I want to say, Anshu, thank you as always for explaining your thoughts at length. And I was going to say, tell everyone about Skyflow, but you just did. So where can people find you on the internet? (laughs) Skyflow.com, at AnshuBlog on Twitter. Uh, Both of them work. Uh, We would love to hear from people what they think about this disruption theory. I'm sure there's many examples that are still working with inferior disruption, but hopefully we give people something to think about and freed them from shackles of low-priced, cheap products. Do you remember the economic concept of perfect competition? Yes. When there's so many participants that all the profit has been removed and so everyone's just selling at cost. This is almost like by defining a new product category, demanding imperfect competition against the market and existing products. And that's the real lever or edge that you have. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to think more about this, Anshu. Thank you so much. Everybody, Equity is back tomorrow morning with a usual news roundup. And we'll keep dragging our friends onto the show to explain stuff to us as we learn new things. But in the meantime, goodbye. Goodbye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 